to Innistrad during a time of regrowth and changing power dynamics in a story arc that will continue across multiple sets. How is MTG Story going to do justice to such a well-established plane, and can its narrative ride the line between spectacle and relatable narratives? You ready, to, you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. <coughs> oh, oh, God, I'm going to die. Are you ready to go? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Welcome to Magic the Flavoring, the Magic the... Pa- oh, fuck. Winning. <laughs> <coughs> oh, come on. We can do it. All right. Welcome to Magic the Flavoring, the Magic the Gathering podcast, where we talk about all things magic, flavor design, and lore. I'm your host, Andy Mann. Hello, this is Nathan Cancel. <laughs> and I'm so hungover. Oh my <laughs> gosh. This is amazing. Uh, I feel like it's normally the other way around, where I'm usually the bleary-eyed, like, struggling to, to, to human. And today I'm like, where are the beans? There aren't any, because I've got all of them. <laughs> you stole them from them. <laughs> I stole all the beans. <laughs> oh, blimey. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, welcome to the human race, Andy Man. Um, yeah. It's a bleak and horrible time. The human race. It's, it's actually this works quite nicely, right? Because this is almost like paralleling the uh, story of Innistrad of how the humans feel. As <laughs> everything's bleak, everything's hard, everything sucks. Yeah, yeah. I tell you what doesn't <laughs> suck. I tell you what doesn't suck, and that is the Innistrad Midnight Hunt story episodes. True. Which True that. were rad. Absolutely fantastic. Um, today we are reviewing. Uh, or, you know, as far as we review anything, really, um, we're going to have a general, general chit-chat about the, uh, yeah, episodes one through five of In the Stradley Night Hunt, uh, of the web fiction. Um, the author, K. Arsenal Rivera, uh, did all five stories, and, uh, yeah, brilliant. They're a massive magic player as well, which absolutely helps. Um, so, and I think it shows through these stories, no? Yeah, I mean, apparently they've, uh, they've even got um, a magic tattoo uh, when they like got their first novel. They were like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to get a tattoo. Like, like, so I like that kind of um, that uh, gung-ho aspect. It's really cool to get a new t- storyteller because you can kind of tell immediately. Um, I remember, because I do this thing where I, I read all these stories and then I, I look back, I'm a Reddit shill, you know, I can't help it. Yeah. So I, I read back through all of the... Um, all of like the talk about each episode as each episode comes out. And there was a lot of um, discourse about like the, the writing style um, and how it feels much more grounded. There are, and as we'll get into at the end, there might be some say like, you know, the typical normal magic pacing issues kind of thing. But it's, sure. I think the writing style was really nice, really evocative. It had a really nice gait to it. Like, uh, yeah, can't, can't, can't sing its praises enough. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people who listen to this podcast um, enough will know that one of my biggest uh gripes with magic uh like sort of language if you like like when people are telling stories and indeed it's in all fantasy is when things sound like too colloquial like i am i am somewhat a fan of like heightened language especially if you're dealing in like fantasy literature um but whilst this you can describe this as being like heightened language at no point did i feel like the characters sounded like they were just your like mate down the pub kind of thing which is what Mm. i don't like um it, it the balance was really well struck with writing. And yeah, again, I just think it shows that that when the author's a massive fan of Magic the Gathering and is excited to write these stories and write these characters, that they they A know what to focus on and B pay lip service to the the kind of things that they should be paying lip service to as well. Um 
so yeah i was gonna say it kind of helps when you uh when you're kind of invested in the game to kind of because i do this you've probably done this as well like throughout the years like you kind of create your own like head canon of kind of like what the characters would be doing or wouldn't be doing outside of the stories we see them in so it's kind of nice that this person probably has already done the same kind of ideas they already have in their mind who they want to see kaya being who they want to see arlen being how they want the plane to be handled how they want the, to voice the characters and it, that i think very much shows like there's a very deliberate tone uh to each of the characters i think yeah it's it's true to it's a good homage to like what we've seen before uh but also sets a good precedence for going forwards yeah 100 percent. um you've done the story breakdown uh this time yeah it, i'm not gonna lie doing story breakdowns i, I thought oh yes it'll be fine yeah, i'll just write it up it sucks because it's, it's a lot to break down it's a lot to condense i got about halfway through story three before my hands just went dude just 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 like do blow by blow you know yeah. werewolf vampire yeah like werewolf <laughs> attack this happened done that was that it was 600 words condensed down into one sentence <laughs> yeah so you, yeah. you'll kind of see i start off a little bit more um verbose at the beginning and then i kind of just cut to the to the important bits at the end which i think is kind of the, how it works anyway right like mm. preamble your setup your world building tends to be quite long and protracted and then when you get to the action it's quite easy when you're doing a synopsis just go yeah x and x person fight and that might be like <laughs> six seven paragraphs but for, for for our intents and purposes as much as we'll talk about the language used and how like um how the um individual bits of uh, text kind of play into it for the most part you can kind of skirt over those bits and go yeah this is the this is the cup this is the person who won uh, don't worry about the rest of it I mean, that the was, beginning that was the running joke of the kaldheim stories was uh oh yeah kaya goes to this new realm and fights someone then she goes to this realm and she fights someone <laughs> exactly yeah whereas this it, it's a little harder to condense quite so much because there are a lot of little bits going on a lot of different we see a lot of different people as well mm. a lot of different uh voices which i think is really really important for when you only have five stories if you're going to get a full like Big, big, big point, I'm going to say straight off, is that Gatewatch take a backseat to our oh, Illustrati protagonists, which still is there. so good. They're still there, but I think it's handled appropriately. Handled really well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right, we'll dive in, mate, and then we'll uh, we'll have a little chat about what we liked. <sighs> yeah, right. I've got a big old cup of tea here, so it's going to get, it's going to, it's going to be a lot of words. All right, one sec. So... We begin following Klaus, the vampire, hunting humans through Kessig before the moon changes. And they reverse Percy on him. Basically, <laughs> the idea being that you think Klaus is facing these humans. These humans look all pitiful, look all sad, look, 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 look really, really scared. And then as the moon comes out, they change. It turns out, oh, they're, 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 these, these aren't normal humans. These are werewolves. And they then turn and attack Klaus uh, with a simple line, the night belongs to those who take it. The reason I say this is because I think this kind of sets the precedence for the rest of the, um, the rest of the set and, and the story as a whole. And the kind of theme, like the idea is the night belongs to those who take it, be it, you know, the vampires or the werewolves. I also like the fact that it kind of starts with a vampire but then switches, it starts with Vampire thinking, oh, this is a werewolf set, and then switches to the werewolves taking dominance. Fantastic. Great. Um, when we begin the story proper, uh, we follow our protagonist, Arlen Cord, ruminating on the colder days, the darker nights, watching over Innistrad in the wake of the travails. Um, the travails are the events of shadows um, over Innistrad and Eldritch Moon. Um, as is usually the case on Innistrad, we're at the scene of a murder, the work of the late Klaus. Arlen talks to Agatha, uh, who lives in the village. Um, we see how desperate and bleak the outlook for humans is in the wake of the encroaching night. But she mentions of a witch rallying the humans and Arlen asks no more of her. We then flash back to Arlen's past, following her and her pack on the hunt of a white stag. Her pack, uh, Streak, Red Tooth, Patience and Boulder. These are the four wolves that are in her pack. Um, they and Arlen track it down to the corner, um, into a corner, but Arlen lets the white stag go. Um, a simple quote of sometimes just laying your eyes on something's gift enough. Come morning, however, the following morning after that hunt, 
There's a skull sitting atop a sword next to where they lay, scraps of white pelt still attached, a message from Tovalar that he doesn't tolerate her softer ways. Um, wherever he is and, where, and whatever he's uh, doing are no longer her problem, she says. Uh, they chose their past long ago. He found his pack and she found hers. It's kind of an introduction into the divergent ways of Arlen and Tovalar. Um, the next story, um, going into story two, we kind of cut back and forth, present and past, um, between um, Arlen now and Arlen back when she first kind of was finding her ways as a werewolf. Um, they are hunting again in this... In, uh, we find ourselves hunting again deeper and deeper into the forest. Um, they're chasing a um, another white stag with a simple message from Marlin, find witches. This is in the present. Um, eventually find themselves on the trail of this white stag. It seems impossibly exactly the same as the stag that she chased um, before. Um, however, Arlen sees through the glamour and calls out to the humour behind the guise, Catilda, uh, the lead witch of the Dawnheart Coven. Arlen has discovered her and the enclave of humans gathered beneath the Celestus, a great stone monument seemingly built like clockwork. Catilda talks of bringing about the Harvest Tide, a ritual to right the cycle of day and night and restore balance to Innistrad. All she needs is a moon silver key, the MacGuffin of this story, and we now have our objective for the story. But as Arlen and Catilda talk, a howl rings out through the night. Tovalar has returned. For Arlen. Um, and this kind of like ends the, the first story. Uh, we then get a story where it kind of, as I said before, it flashes back and forward between uh, present um, Arlen and past Arlen, uh, fleshing out Arlen's backstory with Tovalar, how he took her under his wing after her initial transformation, and her attempts at reasoning with this pack leader, who, as the rumours would have it, dabbles in dark magic, mm. hunts without remorse or prejudice. So he's one of these people, he doesn't really mind if he's hunting vampires, he's hunting humans. The idea is that he owns the hunt the hunt belongs to him and to the wolves and the world is theirs to hunt um at their own kind of you know discretion as it were mm. um we see her battle with her instincts as a wolf and as someone who's still clinging to their humanity his urge for openness no more hiding um is in perfect conflict with arlen's wish to do naught but hide in finding out you know she's a well she doesn't want to have this side of her revealed to the villagers she wants it to kind of be enclosed and, and, and she just wants to run away from it which is what she does she runs away with tovala uh, the narrative bounces back and forth um Fleshing out her, um, switched in with, uh, so uh, showing her early days, uh, switched in with her present resolve. This is the kind of important thing. Back when she was younger, she had such unsurety. Um, she didn't know what she was doing with herself. She didn't know how to kind of balance her life. Whereas now she's kind of come to terms with it. Um, she has like a decent um, hold on on her uh, on her wolf side, her human side, and kind of her resolve to defend Innistrad against even her own kind. Um, he wants her to hunt. Uh, to take the knights to their own. However, her resolve doesn't break, um, seeking balance between the force of the knight and the humans to the point of where even her own pack in the current day tends hill and joins Tovalar to join the hunt and leave her behind. Oh, she has made God. her choice. I know, super heartbreaking moment. Um, there's even a moment where I think one of her, one of the dogs, her patients, um, has a, a moment of like, but, but, but you're not coming. Like you get some really lovely human kind of com um, um, thought patterns and thought processes from the wolves. And um, there's mm. a lot of um, like she even says like they don't necessarily speak in the same way that humans do, but there is a communication, there is an understanding. Um, and again, some of the, some of the bits are so heartbreaking. Um, as Arlen returns to Catilda, uh, she agrees to recover the key for her to bring about the harvest tide to try and reform some balance on the plane. However, she she will need some help. Um, so where does she go? Ravnica, obviously. Obviously, Obviously, yeah. Yeah, she recruits uh, Teferi, Kaya, and Chandra. Um, back to Innistrad they go. The fetch quest, as I've put it, begins. Um, on the um, as they head back to um, the Celestis, uh, they find a Cathar, um, Adeline. Um, as I've put a Cathar of 
almost parodical stature. Like she's almost a parody of, of what I've said is it's serious Gideon vibes. Yeah, like she's yeah, yeah. super righteous. Even says somewhere in the story that she's almost cli- a cliche of virtue. I think like she bashes down a door, and I think some it's like Sharon or someone goes like that couldn't be any more like out of a movie. I mean, obviously I don't say out of a movie, but like it's almost like that. They she she epitomizes that standard cliche white figure of virtue and, and, and authority. It's it's mm. quite it's quite lovely. Um, the five of them go to Thraben which is still overrun with zombies. Um, I said this a couple of weeks ago, there's a quote um, from Liliana where she basically raised all the dead and went, well, now it's your problem now. And obviously <laughs> the zombies are just kind of still milling around. They, they kind of liken it to almost ants milling around an anthill. Um, and I like the idea that it's almost like the zombies have kind of left, um, almost left as almost like a civilization. Uh, they kind of have um, almost like a normality to the way that they gather and act. Like obviously they're not human, they're zombies and still, you know, bad and everything. But it's mm. kind of funny that they've kind of, they're in their... Um, um, inertness they kind of go back to a normal kind of like humanistic civilization um the uh, they basically the idea is they go there to try and find the house of betzold um who were gifted the key decades or centuries ago uh, warren betzold um who's the bishop um, who's a bishop to arlen in her days in the church um is still performing his sermons to an audience of rot as i've put it like the idea is he's still up on this pulpit still kind of which sounds basically the same as most sermons that i've heard anyway um (laughs) but the idea is that chandra blazes a trail through the dead arlen reaches the bishop who then when asked if the key can only manage one word denik um this is his son so they return to the gabby township the betzold called home and investigate the town they find house betzold on overrun with guys and denik residing within who is also now passed um yeah that with yet yeah, without passage to the blessed sleep he is still a geist um so Arne is able to talk to him and all he can offer is another stepping stone to the group saying that the key is now kept at markov manor taken by sorin um we see yet another dilapidated building in repair as they approach markov manor um, they find it almost abandoned, uh, this great crevice in the side of a random wall, like almost something's torn its way out of it. I wonder what that was. Mm. <laughs> and the only person they can find is Sorin himself. Um, he's in his like throne room, as it were. Uh, typically, Sorin is super unhelpful. <laughs> he's defeatist, exasperated, all he has sacrificed for the plane already. Quoting, if my family so wishes to, set, to, to descend up into the worthless hedonism of eternal night, then I've done enough to stop them. Let them feast. Mm. Which is pretty defeatist um Soren then rounds on the group when they confront him and push him further asking what they've done for the plane pointedly demanding what Arlen has given to protect the plane Arlen counters um but in her counter mentions Avacyn bringing um Soren's ire uh, and Blade in fact, he, he comes swinging at her um saying you are not permitted to mention her uh, Arlen defends herself but as Soren advances a feather drops between them heralding Sigarda's arrival summoned by Arlen's faith in Innistrad she confronts Soren and gives them time to recover the key and escape. Um, and as I've put, that is all we fucking see of the fight or aftermath thereof. There is mm. nothing else mentioned about mm. this. There is no Liza. There's no cigar. That's an argument for a later date. Hopefully we're going to see it in Crimson Vale. But anyway, moving on. Apparently, there's no time to dwell. Episode four opens <laughs> and opens to Olivia bathing in blood. Face covered in the skin of a young maiden's face. <laughs> so her great. beauty, I know, is so is so extra. Uh, her beauty time, however, is interrupted by Fuhr, a uh, subordinate stitcher of hers, who happens to have overheard Chandra and company speaking of the key as they travel back to the Celestus. Olivia now knows of the human's intentions to bring her back the Harvest Tide, and I'm sure that's the last we see of Olivia before next set. So there's no worries there. It doesn't yeah. matter. Let's go back to the Celestus. Uh, we return to the human enclave now much bigger and more populist uh, with the message ringing through the people Innistrad must endure 
The ritual is begun at the centre of the Celestis, um, um, but as all seems well, as festivities seem at their climax, the wolves attack. Mm. Kaya takes the key to Catilda, while Chandra, Adeline and Arlen protect the people. Teferi lives up to his name and literally slows the sunset to give the humans as much time against the wolves before they change. The battle is brutal, and inevitably Arlen finds herself facing her mentor, the betrayer of her humanity, Tovala. And as she finally gives in to his taunts, to his invitation to violence, she shifts her form and attacks. The culmination of the narrative friction that we have seen throughout this story, Arlen living two lives, hits its climax. She defends the humans, defends Innistrad with all her might, and bests the pack leader. At the end, betraying his surety that she would always return home to him with one simple lie, I am home from Arlen, is all it takes for him providing an opening. Uh, sorry, all it takes for him to provide an opening for her. Um, it is a lie, however. She does not mean that she is home with him. She means that she is home defending against him. She strikes but does not kill, forcing Tovalar to agree to retreating, to leaving the humans to their ritual. And and uh, and he does so. And Arlen returns to the centre of the Celestis to complete the ritual. The moon silver key in place, it requires blood from the protector, from Arlen herself, ashes from a gnarled root as old as Innistrad itself, and the last piece, the soul of Catilda, temporarily given. But as the witch offers herself, a streak of red and gold barrels down from the sky, and before anyone can do anything, the limp body of Catilda is held in Olivia Valdarin's arms, floating above the ritual altar. A simple proposition, the witch for the key. The ritual successfully crashed, and with no choice, they have to agree. Arlen throws the key to Olivia as she drops Catilda's body to the ground. Arlen tries to catch her, but it's too late, and as quick as she came, the vampire is gone. The ritual in tatters, and the knight seemingly here to stay. Mmm. Yeah, next week for Crimson Vow. Exactly, right? Like, it's such a... Um, I mean, I'm going to bury the lead here by saying I really, really wish they hadn't put Olivia's Midnight Massacre on a card. I feel yes. like it's the only thing that really kind of betrayed the story because otherwise it would have... Because you, you genuinely had a culmination with the wolves and this whole big kind of fight. Like, there was like as I said, I've kind of skipped over the, the, the action bit a little bit there, but the whole of episode four is like the battle for Harvest Tides. And then the second half of, of, of the first half of episode five is kind of Arlen and Tolvala specifically fighting against each other and her resolve and everything. So it's like a big, big, big bit of narrative story. And then it's almost like right at the end, kind of, again, we wouldn't have known it was coming without the card being printed. It kind mm. of does still the show a little bit and it's supposed to right it's supposed to steal the show it's a two-parter this is act one to act two for crimson vow um but in general like the the story as i've as i've glossed over has so much narrative depth so many little conversations with random people like even at the beginning when arlen's talking to Ag agatha it sets such a great um precedence for the rest of the set and it sets some really good um kind of um foreshadowing for how like just how bleak and every everything feels on such on a human level mm. and as much as we get all of these planeswalkers kind of doing these doing these cool things and, we, and we're bouncing around from these different um towns um we, we do see the destruction and the wake of both um everything leading up to Avacyn restored and then the aftermath with Eldritch Moon and Shadows over Innistrad, this kind of, like, everything in Innistrad is real bad. And all they're trying to do mm. is trying to gather together and, and create some, some some harmony and some balance. And they can't even do that. They can't even do that. So yeah. um, it's a really damning story, but, I mean, it does have some super heartfelt moments throughout it. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Arlen Cord is obviously the centre of, like, this narrative, like, in a big, big way. Um, <clears throat> and it is nice to see that 
there are other characters around and they are doing their thing and they do have these kind of moments of narrative relevance, but we do still focus on Arlen. And I think one of the big problems with Planeswalkers in general is that oftentimes they're used as the kind of uh, the the viewer's eyes into the, the world that they don't quite understand, right? Because if they go to a new plane, like Kyra on Kaldheim, it, it, they use as the device of like, well, the audience doesn't know about Kaldheim, and neither does Kaya. So as Kaya learns about it, so do we, which is fine, and that's okay for some stories. But if you do that every single time, then it just becomes big exposition dumps like left, right, and center. So it's nice to have, especially on a plane that we already know, we don't need to like have like fleshed out world rules or anything. I mean, even if you're new to the game, like the information is all still there, and Innistrad is very popular, so you can kind of know what you need to know from that. So it is nice to have Arlen, who very much is in the story, almost literally the pure representation of an Estrad just kind of going through their storyline, you know. Um, there was a really interesting thing that they did with Sorin, where obviously Sorin is generally seen as being like Mr. Innistrad, right? I mean, he calls himself the Lord of Innistrad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he made Avacyn, the fact that he turned against his people to protect like the non-vampire races on the plane, like not protect them, but you know, to like seemingly to kind of side of them over the vampires because the vampires are running riot, and all of his kind of actions have kind of put him in a position of being like, no, I'm the true protector of Innistrad. I'm the one who kind of gets to call himself the Lord of Innistrad. But since he had to destroy Avacyn and his kind of faith in the plane and faith in everyone else is kind of, as you say, has gone all defeatist. It's really cool to see Arlen sort of taking up the mantle and and being a creature of all worlds, you know, a creature of the church and the wolves and the humans, you know. Mm. She so, understands the need for both, right? Like she yeah, understands yeah, yeah. the need for balance. Yeah, 100%. That's all she tries to argue with Tovalo. Is all she wants to argue is that it even starts in episode two where when she's um, in her youth of being like, but why do we have to hunt the humans? Like, you can hunt other things. We can have this we can both live in harmony without the fear you know Mm. like there's enough things attacking there's enough you know there's enough things like demons and devils and ghouls and horrors and stuff that you don't you don't need the more like human um races like the vampires and the werewolves to have the hedonistic approach because they've they've still got human qualities right they should still be able to be reasoned with there should still be some balance and equality which obviously vampires saw and tried to help with that and has failed and then it's funny that arlen has tried to do the same thing with the wolves and succeeded by mm. leaning into her own kind of wolf tendencies being able to fight back against tovalar be a little bit more brutal i think like the way she ends up taking um the way she ends up beating him is by shoving a like a branch through his leg mm. that's the only thing and again she has almost like it's almost like his reliance um or his i guess his hubris right is that the idea is that he he believed so wholeheartedly that she would follow the call to the hunt that she didn't believe for a second or he didn't believe for a second that she could turn against him right or even mm. lie and that was the biggest thing right she almost had to like lie to him because there is still a truth in her wanting to be a wolf and wanting to be a part of the pack she had to turn away from her own pack had to turn away into the humans it's like, like that's such a cool decision point right i guess soren didn't ever have to make that decision he was always just he almost always took upon himself of being like i am the head of the vampires and i will i will control them myself kind of thing right mm. i will create this 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 uh remedy i'll create this um stopgap in Avacyn that will stop my people because I just simply can't control them. Whereas Arlen didn't have that kind of power. She didn't have like old walker status to be able to build a fucking a construct. Like Avacyn, Avacyn Angel of Hope is a ridiculously beefy creature and Sorin just made her. Mm. Just fucking created her. Whereas Arlen has to kind of rely on so much more, has to rely on her on her inner stradiness way more than say her old walker uh, kind of status and power, which is really good to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... There are so many decent individual lines in these stories as well that really sort of sell 
the the sort of drama of the situation. Almost every if you if you're listening to this, go back and read every single like last paragraph of each one of these episodes because mm-hmm. like the writing in it is so is so good. Like every single episode just ends on such a big note. And then you also get like these individual lines, like the the moment where Arlen and Tovlar kind of have their their last little like uh, sort of bait and switch, like with Arlen sort of you know quote unquote lying to him about wanting to be home. I mean, I I actually really don't think it is a lie. I know Arlen in no, the it's story, not, no. Arlen in the story questions whether it's underhanded or not, but actually I think it's it's very sort of sincere. And the the line, the woods are home, the wolves are home, the church is home. All of it is. It's like, oh man, this is the writing that we really need for these yeah. stories. Like, it's so good. Um, yeah, really, really cool. Gives you and the it, willies, right? Gives you the yeah. little shivers where you can, you can, because that's the thing, right? You want writing like this of where it follows a person's um, like internal narrative so well that you kind of fall into pace with it. So mm. then, when you have these big sweeping statements or these big like kind of culminations, it's kind of the same way that um i've written in the past where I, I i love having an amazing opening and fuck the middle 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 call whatever and then you close on something that's really quipped and it kind of just delivers everything with a little flourish and if again if you're on for, along for the ride that little flourish at the end it just lands so much harder it has so much more gravitas because you're like oh yeah she's come to this conclusion and oh i believe it with her and it's so yeah it's, it's really nice to see really really cool um let's talk a little bit about tovalar uh as a as a villain um now, hmm. I I really liked it. I really liked him. I really liked him as a villain. I really liked what they were doing with him because at no point in any of the stories is anyone necessarily saying like, "Oh, werewolves are just inherently evil." And no. like at at all points in the story, even with Arlen questioning everything, even with the the dire wolves, this kind of like almost like new uber breed of werewolf that's kind of come to join Tovalar and the rest of the Moondronen, um, that all their trying to do at least from their perspective is just to live their best werewolf life right like to give themselves over to the hunt and that's all that arlen wants to do as well but arlen's kind of you know uh planeswalker status giving her more of a a sort of detachment detachment yeah even when in like wolf form like kind of stops her from quite investing in it quite as much but even in the flashbacks with arlen uh being under the the mentorship of tovalar He's always painted as quite a a sympathetic and sincere figure to Arlen. Mm. Like there are several times where the other wolves say that Arlen's still his favorite, and that you know he still cares about her, and all he wants is for her to come home, and that mm. they want her there. Even her own pack, who are we are very like made to feel very sympathetic for, um, very quickly, who are not violent and don't kill like indiscriminately. Even they're like well hang on what like we're wolves what are we doing why are we not like joining this big hunt with everyone else and i think it's it's an interesting one because it's not a new sort of narrative device with with villains to say that they're villains and victims essentially of just their own existence like he's not he's not got some grand design for like manipulation or malice mm-hmm. he is just trying to make sure that his people are living the way that his people need to live. And unfortunately on Innistrad, that just means that it comes into odds with everyone else. Um, I I wonder, I wonder, because there's a big thing obviously about Emrakul, the Eldrazi Titan, is still trapped in Innistrad's uh, moon. Innistrad's sun. Innistrad's moon. They don't make too much of it in these stories i think they deliberately tried to ground things back i think it'd be weird to come back and still have it being i mean i don't know if any 
people really it is strange actually the more i think about it, it is strange like it was a giant spaghetti monster that sits upon the horizon that got yeah. sucked into the moon and everyone just seems to be like oh yeah yeah the travails were hard weren't they yeah yeah, yeah lots of death and stuff and yeah well, it, does, I, it I skirts if, it massively yeah i wonder if in crimson vow there'll be some sort of reference to it which is why like you know a why the day night cycle is kind of put off kilter or, and b why maybe the wolves are just the werewolves are just so willing just to be you know, murderous and because, like I, I say, they're not like painted as like massive villains. They absolutely are the villains of of this story, especially like the the, mm. the direwolves are. And you know, there's there's lines Marlin in the last two stories where she talks about how you know she can't look over the fact that they've basically come to this harvest festival <laughs> and slaughtered a bunch of children. You know, it's a, there is obviously that. You know, Mia Culpa, like <laughs> you know, it's it's you know, they still slaughtered and killed like innocent people essentially, who all they wanted to do, all the humans want to do is to survive as well. Um, but I wonder if, yeah, I wonder if we will get some sort of reference to that because it is it is a thing. And I'd be very surprised if there isn't some sort of intent to have, you know, all of the creatures affected by the moon be affected in a weird way because of the giant spaghetti monster that's trapped in the moon, you know? Yeah, I think I think there's points in the story where clearly like the direwolves aren't, this isn't something that they've lent into. It mentions this idea that Tovalar dabbles in dark magic, but I think that's kind of mostly to insinuate more insidiousness to him than there actually is. I think the whole point is it's natural instinct, right? There's a drive. And it even shows from um, Arlen's point of view sometimes where like the, the, the wolf just kind of takes over. It's not an active decision. It's just instinct. It's just, it's just nature. And I feel like maybe because they're so influenced by the moon, having an Eldrazi within it, is pushing them. It's physically uh, making them. Like, I mean, this is Emma calls the Titan of Change, right? That's the whole point that she she transmog she transforms things. And I like this idea that the effect that it has on their lycanthropy is exacerbated by Emrakul's influence. That it does make them more hungry. It makes them more bold. It drives their urges more, and they are victims of that as much as they could try to fight against it. It takes Arlen a huge amount of resolve to be able to do so, whereas the average, you know, wealth I don't think will have that same. Um, fortitude. I don't think they'll have the ability to be able to hold back, especially when you've got someone like Tovalar leading you, when you've got that, as you say, like pack instinct kind of going. So yeah, I think they're as much victims to the lycanthropy as, as or increase, they're increased victims to lycanthropy because they're just getting carried away with what their natural instincts are telling them. It's just, uh, I don't think it's a natural, an active choice in the same way with the vampires of where they could choose right to be they're choosing to give into it whereas i don't know if the fact um, if um i mean there are such there are similar parallels right they both have kind of this idea of you could be in control of what you're doing mm. but you kind of choose to let it go but i feel like with the vampires it's it's less a change that happens within a cycle of day or night it's more just something you have to kind of agree to and like, like sit with yourself like soren's done a very good job of it and i feel like even olivia she has she could be civil right she doesn't seem like she's a crazed mad woman all the time like you could have some civility or an ally, a line of of um of um moderation <laughs> you know i feel like it's much harder to be moderate when your actual curse forces you to be more aggressive yeah, the vampires are a society which has a lot of facades and sort of airs and graces that they try to hold up, um, whereas the wells are the exact opposite of that. They're trying to strip down any sense of trying to be not what you truly are. Um, mm. We do see a little bit of of how vampires kind of view their own uh, monstrousness in the very first episode um, mm. with the opening, with the vampire Klaus. Um, obviously, this is more of a 
device to kind of show off how the werewolves are now starting to get more of an upper hand because obviously the Klaus the vampire is there thinking he's about to tear apart a bunch of humans and then the humans are just like huh, no lol and lol. Turn, into, yeah, literally. <laughs> turn into werewolves and then beat the crap out of him um as they do but it's, it's what the Klaus talks about uh being a falconrath which is one of the the main vampire houses um and how falconraths are like sort of better than other vampires, it just kind of acknowledging their their sort the of bestial, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is, was a kind of an interesting choice to have a Falconrath vampire be the the kind of voice of the first story. I guess it is. It's you know, it's a foreshadow, isn't it? Like an immediate foreshadow to be like, oh, you know, creatures of the night need to be creatures of the night. Haha, look at me, I'm a cool vampire. Oh no, there's a bunch of werewolves that are about to rip me apart. Um, Really cool opening as well, like complete bait and switch. I like sincerely, I got completely suckered in because I was I was reading it and for like two or three minutes, I was like, I swear this is the werewolf set, right? Why yeah. is this vampire knocking around? <laughs> got I really dark. wish I really wish they hadn't mentioned the Falcon Wrath in the first bit because you could have felt as you're reading it, looking through, being like, okay, this is a werewolf because he talks about how like the uh, fangs elongate and the talons elongate, and it always had this kind of feeling of like, oh, is this the is this the werewolf? Because if you skip over that first. Um, initial paragraph and just go straight into the second you could read it as it's he is the werewolf right and he's attacking mm. the humans then before you know it it's like oh no no he's the vampire and he's being attacked by the werewolves but yeah yeah exactly it's, i think that's the whole point right the idea of the vamp it felt like oh this is the, it's, we're following the vampires again it's like no 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 this story and this set is all about the wolves and as mm. as the line as the line states um as as, as i put um at the top um the night belongs to those who take it. And again, that's that kind of epitomizes the story for the set, right? Of, of it's about taking, it's about owning, like the humans can't, it's the only one thing they can't do is take back the night. Whereas all of these other races are trying to take it from them. Mm. Um, it puts them in a very commanding status. It's again, it's just a shame that they got usurped right, right, right at the end again by the vampires. I know it's like a, it's a book ending, right? If it starts with a vampire ends with a vampire, but it did feel like, yeah, the wolves were going to dominate and should have dominated. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that Arlen had her moment. I kind of feel like it should have been something else that, that battered the wolves back. I don't, I don't mm. know. Maybe. I mean, again, it's just a shame that we didn't see Sigarda in a more active role. Probably going to come in in, in Crimson Vale. Um, yeah, potentially. Cool to see Sigarda though. Oh, really cool to see Sigarda, especially when she turns around. She does the whole like the Dumbledore thing of right of where um, help will always come to those who who ask for it at Hogwarts. This kind of idea of like you had faith in me, Arlen. That's why I came. And I'm like, that's Innistrad literally answering back to Arlen's call as protector, right? Mm. Uh, that's so cool. And I just love the way she turns around and what's 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 the line she says is like, oh, you crawled your way out of a rock just to sulk. To so I'm like, oh, oh, bitch, you got burned. Oh, and then all you all you hear is from from the point of view of the planeswalkers is grunting and and and, and screaming from behind. It's like fuck off! I don't care about them picking up the moon silver key. Let's show me the battle between an angel and a vampire. That's way more interesting. Mm. Um, hopefully we'll get some because um, I think we're gonna. There's a story spotlight card right of Sorin finding out that the crypt's empty, uh, that Edgar's no longer in there. So I reckon we will come back to it. I mean, I just really hope he has it just offed Sigarda, and now it's just like Liesa left <laughs> like that would be so sorry to be like well one less angel to go because he even like in the story you don't really see it but he's beheaded the statue that holds the moon silver key which is the statue of Avacyn it's almost like he's completely I mean it's a little bit sad for me to see sometimes because we want Soren to be better I don't know this is me personally I don't know when he was first introduced he seems like um he was going to be like this all like 
kind of like high and mighty all-knowing mental kind of figure and he's just turned to like this petty child where like everything's just gone wrong and i get that he's going to be belligerent about it but i kind of i just i just want more i want better from him i don't want him to be petty and a sore loser and catty and and, and back chatty i want him to kind of like you know take ownership and control I just, I just don't i don't i don't see a way back for his character now you know like i see him on, as he is now I'm like you just haven't learned any of your lessons after all these millennia you're still stuck being stubborn and stroppy like uh, I, don't, I don't know i don't know mm. I, don't, I don't know how you feel about sorry but i just i don't know i don't i don't know i don't like him anymore <laughs> i used to really like him and now i'm like ah, oh, whatever give me someone better it is uh it is maybe how a lot of people have perceived Soren so far anyway. <laughs> like I've I kind of feel like he's always been sort of seen as being the petulant edgelord like man child. Um and now this just kind of yeah fully fully proves it. But it's nice I'll tell you what it was, it was nice to have that much of him in this story without it being about him completely. Because yes he will probably mm. come back in Crimson Vow. Um but we sort of see him after the Shadows over in a Strad story that's not from those bloody War of the Spark books, right? Yeah. Um, so it was nice to actually sort of see where he's at. And also, kind of nice to see him again without Nahiri being in tow. Like, I, I sure. just, I, I'm kind of happy that that storyline isn't just all Sorin is now, is just him and Nahiri, like, battling it out. For Having a feud, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think individually they're much more interesting characters to be divergent from each other's kind of messes. Sure. Well, they can do their own thing. And we've seen uh, Nahiri do her own thing in the Zendikar storyline now, so it's nice to sort of see Soren doing it. And nice to see that he's not brooding because of Nahiri, he's brooding because of Avacyn. Like, that is yeah. a big deal, right? That he had to destroy Avacyn, which was essentially his... Kill creation. his daughter. It's essentially. So, it's so sad. Yeah. Uh, and then have Sigarda knocking through his roof, being like, um, let's talk about Avacyn now that she's gone and she can't, like, you know, keep us under her thumb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, there's this... Also, there's... You know, you know the sister. You know, think that, that she she slapped about. That he didn't do anything about. Yeah, she's back. She's got some words to. She's got some words for you as well. I mean, that's that's the conversation that I'd like to see. Well, that yeah. I hope we get uh, we get next um, next story um, or next set. I hope we get a little story block of that. Um, I th- I really like that episode in general, right? Because that was the um, that was the fetch quest episode, as I call it. Like it was the one that was less focused on um, Arlen and her um, coming to terms with her wolf wolfhood, as it were, and it was less focused on like say the humans. It was more like a little drive by of how Innistrad is now, you know, right? They go to Gavini, we see it over on with zombies. Chandra and um, Adeline get her their time to shine, like fighting back the monster, uh, fighting back all the zombies. Then they go to um, the Gavini where the Betswolds are, where which is where Kaya gets to kind of flex her geist killing power. Hours. Um, I guess what I like is that all of the planeswalkers within the story had their moment to shine in a way that felt organic, but also felt like okay, let's go and fetch all the people that can fix all the individual problems without mm. without having to come up with other MacGuffins. Like we've already got planeswalkers of, as MacGuffins, right? We've got so many of them now that okay, if you need this happening, we've got this person, and if you've got this happening, we've got this person. You need to talk to dragons. Oh, there's Sarkin over there. We've got MacGuffins. We've got MacGuffins everywhere. And it's kind of nice for them to be used in a way that didn't feel too forced. It felt like each of them had their kind of time to shine without over bearing the story um which i think is really really nice um mm. it did feel i felt like a little rushed that one particular episode but again when you're doing a fetch quest between like six different places like how do you how do you avoid that you know mm. especially when all of the other episodes were quite slow in terms of like how much stuff and how much time passed and what they were doing within the episode within the story with how much like was given to it to talk about as i said there was a lot of like sit down conversations between like katilda and arlen between agatha and arlen um lots of little things that ground the story whereas this was obviously a bit more of a um i guess we should see some other parts of innistrad while we're here mm. kind of thing yeah. um 
yeah again just nice to have planeswalkers involved without taking over the entire story yes for sure i did sort of feel like uh that they got to just be there and do their thing without necessarily being the absolute focus point of everything um interesting to see kaya teferi and chandra kind of being the gatewatch combination at this point um because obviously for so long it was those it was the five you know it was nissa mm-hmm. gideon jace uh chandra and liliana um so it's kind of nice to see these different sort of uh like team ups if you like um i still don't know how i feel about this idea that they've got like this clubhouse on ravnica that they all just kind of hang out at <laughs> No, I think that's really cute. I think that's really kitsch. I mean, yeah, but it's got to be like there was like the infinite consortium right on Esper with Tezra. I feel like after War of the Spark, it's inevitable of where they're going to have to fill. And also, the Gatewatch is still a thing, right? They still need to have some headquarters, you know. Meanwhile, back at Gatewatch HQ, you know, like I feel like it has to have that Saturday morning kind of vibe, right? Of where Arlen walks in and uh, like you know, Chandra's just sat in front of the fire, like you know, there's Teferi just flicking through a book, and it's like, oh, who's who's on the roster this week? Um, I think I think that's fine. Again, like they're they're playing small MacGuffins, right? They kind of have to. Like, what's the alternative before you have to do a beak? Send the beacon, fetch (laughs) fetch the warriors. (laughs) You know, I don't Mm. really know how else you can do it. I guess I just sort of feel like don't all these people have like homes to go to? (laughs) Well, Teferi, no, because Alf is. thing anymore um kaya i guess is on bal- is bounty duty well she can't go back to her pl- her plane either right because um oh i forgot what it's called now where's kaya from oh, that place with the colors in the sky that we were that bolus fucked up um good can't remember off the top of my head great flavor <laughs> but yeah I mean, she can't really go home either and then i think shana just wants to be part of the club and be part of the cool team you know, I feel like she's just like the hey, from Kaladesh. Yeah, like, it's like, hey guys, hey guys, awesome. what's? Yeah, but she wants to be like, hey guys, what are we doing this week? Uh, did you want to hang out after? Uh, my mum says you can come over for tea. We've got fish fingers. Yeah, it's just, you know, it feels like that kind of thing, which I think plays to her character, right? She's the only one who's kind of like young, young. I mean, we don't get a proper timestamp on Kaya, but she feels a bit more adult. I guess that happens when you see your entire plane collapse, yeah. right? Um, also, it's quite nice to see Chandra's um, bisexuality kind of played into a little bit more. Um, yes. with with her um fawning all over adeline which i thought was quite was quite cute um i like i, I like that a lot i think that was uh that was well played into it's kind of yeah. funny they've kind of fused the beefiness of, of gideon with the intentions of nissa and they've gone oh we could put that together in one story right like we could just fuse those <laughs> those two intentions together and i think it worked they're gonna have to go a long way to fix that issue but i feel like that's a, a step in the right direction for sure mm-hmm. yeah 100 100 percent um, yeah, I really enjoyed reading these stories. I, I also didn't feel like they were overstuffed either, despite the fact that they did cover a lot of ground. Um, reading them definitely felt like we got enough character as well as sort of plot. The only thing I think I wish was fleshed out more, if it was possible, is the Dawnheart Coven. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree. I feel like there was the episode where we flashed back and forth between Arlen was really, really important. But one, I felt like it was a bit destroyed to do flashback and flash forward each other paragraphs quite a lot. And I felt like they could have maybe put some of that in with the the, the, the um, Harvest Tide battle or like the bit where we see Arlen fighting Tova. I feel like that could have combined together more. We could have had less... Arlen talking to Agatha right at the beginning, we could have seen her get to the coven a little bit earlier and maybe settle into it a bit more. Or when we go back um, after we found the Moon Silver Key, we could have settled into it a little bit more. So there was bits and pieces, right? You got that feeling. You got mm. the, the the idea of what was going on there and the, and the intention. But yeah, again, we didn't quite get to dig into it too much, especially since I think next set, we're not going to see the humans as much. 
mm. right? I mean, this is the Wolf-led set, and we did get a lot of specifically Arlen. But yeah, it would have been nice to flesh out a little bit more, especially since now I think Catilda, I think Catilda's dead. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I think she's dead. I think the human, the human uh, encampment's in tatters. The, the ritual didn't go very well. It's like, well, it would have been nice to see it before it all went to shit a little bit. You know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um I would have absolutely completed the ritual rather than saved Catilda. Yeah, what the Olivia. fuck were they thinking? What were they thinking? Madness. Ugh. I mean, I know plot has to happen and stuff, but at that point, you're like, don't give the key back. She, she's, her soul's already left her. But I guess there was a line, right, of where the other um, witches said they couldn't do it without Catilda. Um, yeah. So I do understand. It was just one of these things of where, you know, like you're watching those films and like you, you can tell that the, 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 the opposite of Deus um, Ex Machina of where you know that something's going to stop it of where they're doing that delay thing of where they're talking too long they're taking their time and something stops them right at the end it's like ah, oh, c- come on things mm. don't happen like that in real life like the fact that Olivia just arrived by herself without any like just no no nothing whatsoever I, I, was, I mean to be fair we did see her in her point of view say that she was talking to a uh, Fuhrer right and saying like well what would you do if you found um if you found people like uh, trying trying to inter- interrupt your craft and he was like well I'd kill him and she goes, well, would you would you kill them straight away? And he goes, yes, straight away. It's, it's, it's damn those people. And, and Olivia's like, no, 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 darling, darling, darling. You wait until they do all of the work for you. Yeah. And it's like it's like oh, she's so she's so cool. I hate that I love her so much. Like I'm, I'm it's annoying that, that all this this story all this story does is for me because I don't get me wrong. I really like Tovar. I really like Arlen. Um, I like the combination of their story, but I feel like I have, don't know enough about Olivia. Um, yeah, and I want to see more. And I love this idea of where she's just kind of sitting around prepping herself up for a wedding. She goes, "Oh, Tuesday? Yeah, I think I think I can fit in. Yeah, I can fit in disrupting the ritual into my uh, into yeah, I can fit that into my week. That's fine. Yeah, I've got time for that." Um, it's also really fucking annoying that the only reason they found out is because Chandra was blabbing her mouth off too loud about finding the Moon Silver Key. And had she just kept her mouth shut, then Fuel would have never have known, would have never been able to tell Olivia, and then Olivia never would have been able to interrupt the festival. You know, it's just so frustrating. Can the good guys not just win a little bit for once? <laughs> You know, well, I mean, no. not this, in the as you say, this is the first of a two-part, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, I, yeah. I can't wait to see how they um sort of stitch the the stories together. Uh, I wonder if they will. I wonder if they will. It is in a strad. Maybe they will just leave it kind of bleak. Well, because I think we, I don't know if I, I'm pretty sure. Um, okay, predictive wise, I'm pretty sure we haven't. We've seen the last of Tovan. Obviously, he's injured. He's hurt. I, I, he's not gone. He's not dead, which is good because it allows us to have like a longer lasting, not. Uh, villain necessary, but antagonist right he can continue to be like again they just wanted a longer night because it made their lives better and easier that doesn't necessarily mean i think they'll, they'll come back with a gusto after being like oh we were thwarted now we shall we shall thwart you back i feel like you know he's been uh dutifully kind of like browbeaten i feel like he's like okay now i'll just go back and we'll just go back and be normal wolves fine whatever um mm. i do worry about what because the line at the end, let me let me bring up the line at the end of the whole of the of the whole five parter. Because it's so galling. Because it just makes everything feel like the, had they not started the ritual, things wouldn't have been. I feel like now they started the ritual, weren't able to complete it. Things are worse, right? I feel like that's the whole point Olivia wanted. She was like, "Let them do the work for you." Is let them get to the point of where the ritual's just about to be finished, and just before they go and let's balance it, they interrupt it. So now it's in like utter unbalance. It's completely flip sided. Mm. Um, but the last line is. Uh, by the time the world stops spinning, the vampire is gone, flown away from the looks of it, a distant speck in the black against the already dark sky. The key is gone with her. The Celestis has gone silent. It is night on Innistrad. It will be night here. For, uh, it will be night from here to eternity. Ooh. Like, it's so spooky. And I, thought, I like this idea of now the eternal knights come in. Now the vampires can have their fucking big ass party, par- um, party wedding kind of thing. So, 
yeah i mean again this is end of the first part i don't think we'll see the werewolves come back to fight with the humans against i think what we'll likely see is a resurgence of both walkers and angels and then we still haven't heard anything of thalia anything of odric anything of saint traft i think that's very fucking deliberate i don't think the dawn hut coven are the only humans left on in the strat i think those are the more like homely trying to come back to something more ritualistic whereas they still have a last bastion of cathars and knights and homely warriors but we didn't want to cross those too much you know adeline was enough right to inject into this side of the story that i think they'll um backface all of it into into the crimson veil i think that's probably how they'll go with it yeah yeah for sure cool i mean i i, I know we, we haven't actually been recording for that long but i kind of feel like we said everything that we need to say about this story i'm just i was really happy to be back on in i was really mm. happy to sort of get to be in this world again and to have a much smaller story really like because although the implications of it are quite big with it being like day night cycle on the entire plane last time we were in Innistrad and we had like a big battle scene or several it it was it was for the like fate of its like m- metaphysical existence in the multiverse you know you had a eldrazi titan like yeah <laughs> messing we know up. we know what happens when eldrazi are left to their own devices so it did feel super tense like was, when, the, when and it was big right Whereas yeah and the trailer was, as well right when she yeah. had all of the zombies fighting it felt yeah it, gets, it was the end of the world <laughs> yeah whereas this isn't the end of the world like it might be like a like the day not obviously the day night cycle is important and, and all that kind of thing but really at its core it's a story about you know one person's struggle to know where their home is even well into their life you know Mm. they're 45 50 years old and even then they still don't quite know who they are which is you know i think something a lot of people can relate to and it's you know the battle is a battle between one group of humans at a festival and one group of werewolves you know as as horrifying as that is that's something that happens on Innistrad every day it just so happens that this particular one had all the big players involved in it you know mm. um and i really liked that i thought it was it didn't feel any less tense or any less kind of like important to the characters that you were reading about and that made you invested in it it was just nice to have a break from like oh plane destroyed like you know and i don't even think we've had those stories really uh, like recently like a lot of the stories that are being told i mean the doom scar and kaldheim but that's kind of what kaldheim like the kind of ragnarok allegory is all about yeah but you know they have kind of peeled back from doing these like big destructo stories quite so often but i think because we had so much of it in such a like concentrated dose during the bolus arc I think even now you sort of have to be careful of doing these big, like, plane-wide destruction stories, which is nice that they're not doing it. And yeah, it's yeah. kind of hard to build a story without that kind of conflict, right? And as you as you say, if you look about it in a bubble, there's a bunch of humans trying to create a ritual. Because of the gathering of the humans, naturally the wolves came to fight them because it's their territory. And then the rest of Innistrad, technically, even though it would be affected by the ritual, is unaffected otherwise. You know, it's not like this sweat. Again, we did a drive-by episode touching on different other towns and stuff, but the conflict wasn't huge. It was very isolated, right? It was, mm. very, it was, a, a, it was between a specific few players, which, yeah, I guess makes it feel more... It makes it feel more visceral because you can kind of ingrain yourself in it more. It's very hard to relate to a giant spaghetti monster on the horizon with yes. a thousand zombies attacking it. You know, it doesn't necessarily play as well is easy to imagine whereas a lot of these conflicts felt very much more um they hit closer to home you know even like the olivia bit like it's again it's one person coming in and fighting one person you mm. know and it's quite nice to to see that isolation i think they'll probably continue that into crimson vow it seems like the personalities are going to be really really important rather than the conflicts themselves it's the personalities involved that kind of lead it which i think yeah. is probably where we suffered before 
of where they tried to either have too many personalities involved or the personalities didn't really matter. It's a megalomaniacal fucking dragon. Who cares? Or yeah. you know, I mean, it doesn't doesn't have it doesn't have that kind of um, let's say that grounding that grounding that you can kind of get into. And again, maybe this has something to do with the story style and the writing style, because again, the writing style did a really good job of painting these characters as super relatable, giving you enough of their insight. And I know some people mentioned like the tone or not the tone, the, um, the form of writing, like being either being first person kind of, they found jarring i'm like well once you sink into it, i find it more relatable because you're speaking from yourself into the story whereas if you have like the they did this and they did that there's a sense of detachment so i think it was really clever and sensible way to do it especially when it's supposed to feel like you know we're humans like if we lived on innistrad this is the kind of thing that we'd be issuing we don't know how to relate to vampires and werewolves all we know how to relate to is being squishy squishy man things that get killed easily by everything mm. you know a night is spooky no more spooky more some please you know that's much more relatable so mm. yeah yeah very good Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I think I think that will do it for the Midnight Hunt story review. Uh, I can't wait for Crimson Vale. Um, I'm not even that into vampires these days, but I think it's going to be absolutely like it's going to be so much fun. It's going to be really mm. nice and campy. It's going to be great. Um, all right, guys. Well, tell us what you think about the Midnight Hunt storyline. Um, I'm just about feeling human again after an hour of recording. Um, <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, yeah, hit us up. Hit us up rather on Twitter at mtflavoring. Emails go to mtflavoring at gmail.com. My personal uh, Twitter is at Andy Manface. Nathan's yours is at the Fox in the Moon. And uh, yeah, Nathan, do you have any final thoughts? I know you've been doing a lot of talking. Um, only one, and that's. If anyone out there has been in that position where they know of a certain card that's in their collection and then you start theory crafting around it and you're like, oh, and it keeps like going off into different tangents and you're like, oh my God, yes, amazing. You go to build the deck and you can't fucking find that one card. So you have to go online and then buy another one, even though you know next week you're going to find it. Welcome to the hell that I've been in the last 24 hours. Um, that's it. My last little personal rant. Don't worry. I'm there with you. Just you bite the bullet. Okay. Bite the bullet and, and, and buy, buy the card because it's not worth spending hours and hours riffling through the same cards knowing it's not there. Um, I will find it. Honestly, I'll find it next week. And so that'll be my uh, rant next week that I'd have found the card after we bought another one. But oh, God, it's. Wait, annoying. is Magic the Gathering a card game? Yeah. Right. Crazy. I know. There's like pieces and attacking and stats and stuff and yeah i, know, I thought it weird. was just a collection of stories with like, yeah it's just you know, a narrative device i mean the, i think the cards are mostly there to help carry the narrative oh, um, they're, most, sure. they're mostly collector's pieces i don't think there's much of a game involved in it to be fair well, can you get like a sticker book <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly it's a bit more sticker book amazing oh god love it awesome <laughs> well all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for listening this has been magic the flavoring we'll see you soon